For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with. Even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tadakara's truth. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, for new people, I'm Taigen Dan Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Um, our, I'm very happy to have as our guest uh, speaker this morning, Stephen Hine. Um, maybe all of you have heard him here before. He's been, been to Ancient Dragon numbers of times, but just briefly, he is, um, I would say, the foremost uh, American uh, academic scholar of uh, Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen in the 13th century, and generally of Zen and of koans, and he's uh, written many, many books. Uh, I would, it would take the whole morning to just name them all. Uh, anyway, um, we are going to talk this morning about new directions in Zen studies, and this is from a workshop that Stephen and I both attended. There's a couple of other people here, I think, who attended. Um, and uh, this was an academic workshop uh, over the last two days. Uh, and this is not a comprehensive uh, uh, inclusion of all new directions in Zen studies. As someone pointed out at the end, this is, was restricted to Japanese uh, Zen, not uh, uh, Chinese or Korean or Vietnamese. But uh, there were six uh, uh, really fine leading scholars uh, of Zen. So um, what we're going to try and do, I will uh, basically introduce uh, and hit key points in each of them in turn. Then Stephen will respond. And then, then at the end, we'll have uh, hopefully time for questions and discussions. Uh, three of the papers were related to Dogen directly. A couple of them were more modern 20th century issues. So I'm going to just start with William Botterford, uh, who was talking about the resurrection of Dogen. So William is one of the, uh, if not the leading scholar of medieval Soto Zen. Um, and before he get his, his paper was on uh, the resurrection of Dogen, starting in the, in the early 1920s with the writing of Watsuji Tetsuro. I'll come back to that. But before that, he said some very interesting things uh, about medieval Soto uh, Zen. So some of you have heard the stereotype that Dogen was not studied from, I don't know, maybe around 1300. He died in 1253 until the early 1600s. And uh, William... Uh, persuasively indicated that this was not really true. There were many 
different versions and different texts of Shobogenzo essays that were circulated. They're still being discovered in old, in old Soto temples around Japan. Uh, and um, there were a lot of them had marginal notes that indicated a shared culture of reading Shobogenzo texts. So there were um, prior uh, texts that were uh, in, indicated uh, in the margins that, that were in common. So there was a very active, during this whole period, there was a very active culture in Soto Zen of reading Dogen, again, the uh, 13th century founder of what we now call Soto Zen, who brought this tradition from China to Japan. And, and maybe I was going to say something just briefly about uh, academic study or scholarly study in general and practice, which is our main concern here, but they, the two can be mutually reinforcing. So to learn about the tradition and to learn about what is happening in academic studies can be informative to our practice, which is for us the point. So I'll try and keep these two uh, points that relate to our practice, but one of the the main uh, point that uh, William Botterford brought up was about this um, resurrection of Dogen in the 20th century, that starting in the early 1920s, there was this um, article, originally, eventually a book on Shaman Dogen, Monk Dogen, by uh, a lay person, Watsuji Tetsuro, Japanese person, who was trying to bring Dogen to the attention of Japanese people beyond the Soto school, where he'd been mostly, uh, most of the attention was before. Uh, and he, part of this is to uh, show Dogen as an independent philosopher and to show that, that Japan had a tradition of philosophy uh, to, to uh, match or to, uh, to dialogue with Western philosophy. Uh, William mentioned uh, a number of other versions in his paper of Dogen um, uh, from 1944 to 1970. These are were based on particular articles or papers or books. Dogen, the religious innovator. So Dogen was one of the uh, early 13th century or 13th century figures in Japan who, brought, who started new movements in in Zen, in Buddhism, including Shinran and Pure Land and Nichiren, the Lotus Sutra. Uh, then Dogen, the Zen master, talking about his role as uh, not just a writer, but as someone who was actually uh, supervising monks and building temples. And then Dogen, the internationalist, in 1958, starting to talk about all the translations of Dogen, which now the point was made that Dogen is not just a Japanese Buddhist figure. He's a world figure, uh, not even just in North America or throughout Europe and South America uh, and uh, and through Asia. uh, People are are reading Dogen. Then 1965, one of the most interesting is Dogen, the the literary person. So uh, for a long time, Dogen was considered this uh, religious writer. But in starting in 1965, and and including much later, he started to be included in poetry collections and people started appreciating his prose writing. So as, as, a, as a literary writer, uh, Dogen, the philosopher in 1970, and also in 1970, uh, someone did a paper on Dogen, the human being. Of course, 
all the others are human beings. But uh, this person really looked at, did a kind of psychological biography. He, had some, he was someone who had done a, a biography, a psychological biography of Leonardo da Vinci based on a couple of lines from uh, from something he wrote. So uh, that's just kind of introduction to what um, William Bodyford presented. Stephen, would you care to amplify that or say some more about uh, William's paper and presentation? Uh, yes, uh, Ty again. Thank, thank you. First of all, thank you for the introduction and for um, the opportunity to be with Ancient Dragon uh, once again. And um, uh, I think it's a very interesting uh, topic. So uh, William Bodiford, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, some of his works. He wrote a monumental book in 1993, the um, Soto Zen in Japan, that still is a extremely useful um, resource for understanding the early period of Soto Zen. It's not primarily on Dogen, but he does have an excellent um, discussion of of Dogen and his early disciples and then how Soto sect continued to evolve over the next uh, couple of centuries. And um, uh, William's work is, uh, I guess, overall is primarily medieval, but he, um, like many people, also um, delves into Dogen uh, in the modern period or later implications or more recent appropriations, interpretations, acceptances, uh, uh, you know, various views of how Dogen has been seen in the modern period, because you can't separate um, the fact that we're all kind of modern looking back at um, the ancient and medieval uh, periods. So um, I guess William's remarks, as as Tygen indicated, were kind of going a little bit in uh, two, two paths. The opening remarks, he talked about the manuscript culture related to um, uh, Dogen Shobogenzo. So as part of the uh, Soto Zen uh, translation project that has been working for over two decades now um, to develop a bilingual edition that would give a complete translation with many annotations and other um, tools uh, for the reader, like glossaries um, on the, on the Shobogenzo, um, and, and William has been involved in that project and he's writing, uh, maybe the introductory volume, if it, depending on how the publication works out, but uh, he's writing a very uh, lengthy and substantial, um, introduction. And so he's been doing a lot of research and for uh, research that I did also in kind of separately, but, you know, I've uh, been in touch with him the whole time and we've traded some notes, um, uh, but for a book I published last summer on Shobogenzo, I was also looking at what what is kind of a black hole, I think, that um, that needs to be uh, understood better and, and some misimpressions rectified about what was going on with Shobogenzo over the course of many centuries. So Shobogenzo was uh, not complete when Dogen uh, died. He Dogen died a little bit prematurely, we could say, when he was... 53 years old, and there were several versions of Shobogenzo at the time that he and his main disciple, Ejo, apparently um, had had been working with. It's not clear exactly what Dogen's intentions were for the final editing and the final production of Shobogenzo, uh, so that has been uh, a bit of a mystery. Um, and um, 
And uh, the, the kind of stereotype has built up that after a couple of uh, attempts at making commentaries on Shobogenzo in, um, in the first uh, three or four generations after Dogen's uh, death, and there were basically two attempts at that, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, after, after the attempts at um, interpretation, um, then Dogen was kind of, or uh, Dogen in general, and maybe, and, and Shobogenzo were kind of forgotten about for um, a number of centuries in the medieval period, because there weren't additional commentaries in the typical sense of the term for several centuries. It's true from the early 1300s to the earlier mid 1600s, we don't see um, the commentary tradition continued. So that in that sense, the Conventional view is kind of correct, but does that mean that Dogen was forgotten about or um, and Shobogenzo neglected um, for that period of time? Um, you know, I, I definitely agree with uh, William's comments, his brief comments yesterday that no, it doesn't mean that. And I'll explain more in a moment. So um, and then what happened after that in the uh, early 1600s, that's the Tokugawa period or the Edo period in Japanese history. Uh, there was a lot of uh, new influences coming in from China. Uh, the Shogun wanted the Rinzai Zen school and the Soto Zen school to kind of define themselves and distinguish themselves and not have overlap. So the, there was an attempt by the leading uh, monks to to um, kind of reclaim Dogen as their uh, founder and their leader. And um, that was a way of distinguishing uh, Soto from Rinzai. Um, uh, there were more commentaries, but still, I think the impression has been given that, well, maybe there were a handful of commentaries. Still wasn't very much going on until uh, Watsuji comes along in the 1920s to re-evaluate uh, and um, resuscitate or restore a reputation for Dogen, but he does it uh, kind of stripping it away from the um, Soto tradition and the Zen uh, heritage um, and and looking at him as kind of a worldwide uh, philosopher or thinker. So um, in that sense, um, the traditional Dogen still is kind of um, forgotten. Let me go back to those early centuries very briefly. There were two commentaries on on Shobogenzo, different editions of the work. One was prose, line by line, or interlinear uh, commentary. Um, for the most part, that has not been translated uh, yet into English, but it's very interesting because it gives interpretations of every, uh, just about every sentence, every phrase, every passage. Um, so it's it's uh, important. And then um, there was a prose commentary on a different edition of Shobogenzo, excuse me, a poetic commentary that, that I published last uh, year um, by a monk named Gion, who was the fifth abbot of Eheji. And that's not really an interpretation because it's poetry. So it's kind of like an, a spiritual um, exposition or a spiritual explanation of Gion's view of the essential meaning of each of the uh, Shobogenzo fascicles or chapters without really trying to analyze them. So then what happens in between? Again, the commentaries pick up in the 1600s. So there's 300 years that are kind of a blank slate. Well, um, as William pointed out, uh, there were dozens and dozens of copies made of the manuscripts that are available. They've been recovered from archives of temples throughout Japan and Soto sect was growing. So, you know, Soto sect started having dozens and hundreds and, 
you know, thousands of temples um, throughout the Japanese countryside. Um, and uh, Rinzai Zen was pretty much limited to Kyoto in terms of its, its uh, geographical scope. And Soto Zen was just about everywhere else. And Shobo Genzo was being copied by monks at a he- from, who would visit a Heiji, take a manuscript copy back to their home temple. And a lot of those have been recovered. So we see a lot of activity, a lot of interest. Formal commentaries weren't written at that time, but notes were taken. Uh, there was a kind of juggling of the order and sequence of the fascicles and different thoughts about how to uh, present a complete edition. And so um, uh, because uh, this has been part of the black hole, you know, uh, uh, his work is helping to um, uh, restore uh, an understanding. Um, then let's come up to Watsuji. As uh, Taigen mentioned, part of the main theme for uh, William's um, analysis yesterday was uh, Watsuji who in 1920s, almost single-handedly, people look back and say, well, he told the world, hey, um, there's this uh, traditional Japanese philosopher who uh, stands on a world stage in terms of his significance. But but Watsuji was kind of an anti-sectarian uh, person. He wasn't only a lay person. He, he said, well, the tradition you know, can't keep Dogen to itself, so we have to talk about him separately. Actually, I think if you read his interpretation, it's kind of traditional in its own way. So, you know, it's part of the um, intellectual discourse at the time was to be secular, to be to be modern by reclaiming the tradition, but putting it in a modern standpoint. And and as Taigan explained, that opens the door to looking at Dogen uh, many different ways. So, you know, is there a is there a real Dogen and what happens to Dogen as the religious figure, as the, as the person who um, advocates um, uh, meditation, as the person who talked about dropping off body mind, as uh, the person who uh, led uh, temple uh, rituals, who emphasized monastic discipline, what happens to those traditional elements of Dogen in Watsuji's view or other views that talk about him as, as a philosopher, as a literary figure. Now, one, person I want to mention briefly is um, a scholar in Germany who's published a number of things in English, uh, Ralph Muller, who uh, wrote an interesting article a few years ago um, showing that Watsuji, of course, didn't come out of a vacuum. He was not really the first one to do this. Several other predecessors going back to the 1890s um, started to do it and it kind of built up over, um, over the course of um, those decades that there was this interest uh, by the Japanese who wanted to present a modern view of, of Japan to the, to the West and say, Hey, we, but also wanted to say, Hey, we haven't, we have a um, history that's kind of equal to yours. One, one of uh, Watsuji's interests was to talk about the city of Nara and the large temples and pagodas there um, and kind of compare them to, um, to Greek architecture and um, uh, talk about that as a classical period of Japan. Um, so that was another angle where he was trying to um, put Japan uh, and its cultural history into uh, world prominence. And Dogen gets caught up in that. Um, but it, you know, uh, uh, let, I'll make one more comment and turn it back to uh, Taigen. Um, I think um, one of the interesting things about um, 
what William is showing and it's pretty uh, evident and it's, it's also quite evident now in the uh, English ratings, whether academic or, or not academic about Dogen is uh, there's so many different ways of, uh, of interpreting and appropriating the significance of Dogen. And sometimes it's almost unrecognizable if, if he's looked at as a philosopher versus a religious teacher, or if he's looked at as uh, for his uh, writing quality as opposed to his uh, emphasis on practice. But at the same time, if we put, if we put those uh, interpretations together, it helps to uh, complete the puzzle and gives, a, uh, you know, each one contributes in its own way to a fuller picture of Dogen. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I'll just add briefly to what you said, and, and we have a lot of material to cover, but uh, that first uh, commentary on Dogen in prose, which unfortunately has not been translated yet, uh, was by two direct disciples of Dogen. So later commentaries uh, lean on that comment on that Japanese commentary because these were commentators who actually heard Dogen give the talks that, that Shobogen is based on. So there's a lot more to say yeah, about... It, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that's a very, very important point. But let me just add to that, that um, they were direct disciples, and so they were attended, uh, they would have attended the lectures. But it didn't come to get um, um, published, as publishing was back in those days, until uh, 1308 is the date that's given. So there was a big... Um, time lag there. And in the meantime, they had returned to um, Kyoto and the first of them had died off and the second one uh, did the publishing. Um, but because they were in Kyoto and Soto Zen was spreading up in the northern territories around Eheji, um, uh, it seems like it got lost. So that manuscript was probably not being read for several hundred years. And, yeah. But once it was rediscovered, yeah, then people said, hey, this is the real thing because um, these guys um, heard it, you know, directly from Dogen. Thank you. Yes. So um, there's so much more to say on all of these uh, six papers, and we're, some of them we're going to we're going to just barely mention. But I want this, the next one is was the paper by Stephen Hine himself uh, called "When Mountains Can No Longer Be Seen." So uh, in, this is very interesting for us because it's. Uh, dealing with Genjo Koan, one of Dogen's main writings that we sometimes chant. It's a little long for chanting usually, but one of the key phrases, but Stephen talks about one sentence only and, or one phrase only uh, that, uh, and looks at in his paper through the history of different commentaries on this one, on this one phrase. So it's very interesting. And Stephen, I hope um, when you're ready that, that I can share that paper. I think a lot of people here will be interested in it. But the, the, the sentence that, well, let me read the sentence that, uh, as in Stephen's translation, when the Dharma has not yet been studied fully with body-mind, it seems adequate. But if the Dharma is simply is amply realized with body-mind, one has a feeling of lack. And then this this is the sentence. For example, when riding a boat out to sea, where mountains can no longer be seen, we look around in four directions, and all we seem to view is a circle. We do not see any other shape. Nevertheless, the great ocean is not round nor square, and the remaining and the remaining features of the ocean are altogether inexhaustible. So, uh, 
this is a, a key phrase in Dogen. Oh, let me read it just for those of you who are familiar with the version by Kastan Hashi that we chant. When Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. And we've talked about that here a lot. Uh, it's re- really um, a poignant passage. Then, for example, when you sail out in a boat to the midst of an ocean where no land is in sight, literally it's no mountains in sight, as uh, Stephen points out, and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way, but the ocean is neither round nor square. It features are infinite in variety. So um, Stephen looks in his paper at a whole uh, uh, centuries of commentary just on that sentence about going out into the middle of the ocean. And as I've pointed out to him, if you go into the middle of Lake Michigan, I understand it's the same way. You cannot see any land. Uh, and this is an important uh, point because it brings in Dogen's teaching about perspective and the limitations of human perspective, the limitations of what we can see. Um, so uh, I'm just going to maybe list a few phrases from Stephen's long paper that are that, uh, that uh, jumped out at me. He talks about the ongoing possibilities that are often imaginative and inventive means of disclosing truth not disconnected from the from untruth. So when we can only see this, the ocean as a circle and can't see the details of the shoreline, we have to imagine reality. We have to imagine the reality of the ocean. So um, he talks about the relationship between perception and reality or subjectivity and objectivity, which comes up from this phrase, that from the sentence. Uh, he also talks about the founder of modern Dogen, Soto studies, Nishiari Buksan, is a very important figure and important for us because he was the teacher of Kishizawa Ion, who was one of Suzuki Roshi's teachers. Um, and Nishiari Buksan suggests that apparent partiality is actually intended to indicate limitless capacity. So there's this, there's this tension between the limitations of our perceptions, of our intellect, of our human reality and true reality. Um, and uh, Stephen points out this Dogen's standpoint is based on personal authentication rather than abstract speculation or even experiential corroboration. So this uh, um, uh, personal authentication uh, is an interesting uh, way of talking about Dogen. Last thing I want to say, um, well, two, two more things. Um, one one thing that uh, Stephen's paper says, which I had never real never thought of before, that Dogen's journey to China in 1223, where he spent four years studying and then came back to Japan, what produced an awakening reflected in this passage, because he was literally out to sea on the way from Japan to China and could not see any any lands uh, around. So. At, at, and Stephen goes into how that was a kind of awakening where he realized what he what he describes in the Skandra Koan passage of, of not being able to see the details of the shoreline, the mountains around. Um, um, and just a quote from uh, a piece from uh, Stephen's paper, Nishiari Buxon indicates the journey created a dramatic transition with profound theoretical implications from Dogen's previously landlocked outlook 
to the awakening of a more comprehensive, multi-perspectival approach for understanding the complexity of reality in relation to human human perception, limited human perception, and the complexity of reality. There marked an abrupt and irreversible sense of shifting away from a physical connection with the shoreline, with the shore, to an incomparable feeling of solitude and the inescapability of realizing just how much one cannot possibly know. So that's a that's from uh, Stephen's comment on Nishiari Boksan. Uh, very interesting. And Stephen ends with talking about Dogen's standpoint, which I think is very useful, of creative ambiguity. So a lot of Dogen's writings, as a lot of you know, are very difficult because he doesn't pin things down a lot of the times. He leaves things with questions. He asks, he directly asks questions, but there's a kind of possibility there, which has led to a lot of later and modern interpretations, but that's kind of intentional for Dogen. I think that's what Stephen is saying when he talks about creative ambiguity in Dogen's writing. So uh, we have a lot to cover today, but uh, Stephen, do you want to add to uh, what I said about your paper? Uh, Yes. Thank you for the introducing it that way. I appreciate your, um, your very nice summary Um, on that issue of translating it as land or mountain. Yeah, literally it's mountain, Yama, Yama, Naki, Kaichu are the, are the four um, characters, Um, no mountains um, or the, or the four uh, phrases, no mountains uh, in the middle of the ocean is what it literally says. But of course, land is accurate. I mean, uh, because you're not seeing, you know, you're not seeing a a landmass in front of you anymore. But I think, you know, uh, the, the idea of the mountain is like that would be the very last thing you might see if there was a very tall mountain off in the distance. And when that so when that also kind of disappears from view now, um, when Tygan and I were talking about this on the phone a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, you know, he said the title talks about one sentence. And, and I said, well, it's really one phrase. And then I said, yeah, but you got to look at the whole paragraph. So he said to me, is it one are you talking about one sentence or one phrase or one paragraph? And then we kind of laughed to each other and said, you know, Genjo Cohen is like one big long sentence without any punctuation because it's so, you know, intricately connected in the way he weaves back and forth between the various um, kind of existential reflections or uh, thoughts about perception and reality and then the natural uh, images. And he talks about the boat um, riding a boat here. And he talks about uh, the boat as um, uh, emblematic of impermanence in a previous paragraph. And then he talks about the fish uh, swimming in the sea a little bit later on. So it's all very much uh, interconnected. Uh, you know, on the landlocked part, I realized uh, I had spent a lot of time some years ago thinking about Dogen's travels in China and how he how he and other monks at that time would have traveled around to the various temples, what they ca- might have carried with them, um, you know, Dogen comes back with such a tremendous storehouse of knowledge of Zen uh, writings that were not available in Japan previously. So how did he, you know, he, he didn't have digital versions. So how did he learn these and how did he memorize them? And, how, you know, what did he carry them with him? And, um, you know, there's a backpack, a wooden kind of backpack that he carried. It would not have held all those uh, materials. So there must have been an entourage of people. And, you know, it's hard to speculate. But also the question of how did he travel um, in that mountainous area where he was in China? 
Um, and apparently he, he probably went through canals and some ancient footpaths that were, that the monks had carved out uh, centuries before. But also, how did he get to uh, China from uh, Japan? And, um, and uh, going from Kyoto to the southern island of Kyushu and the port there, um, he probably took some inland waterways um, because that would have been the quickest way to go. Um, but, but, you know, you're, you're still going to see the land around you because they're, you know, unlike Lake Michigan, you know, those areas are probably not big enough to give that sensation of uh, being cast adrift. Um, and, you know, the travels at that time were not um, very uh, easy uh, for a number of reasons, for political reasons. Uh, not many monks had gone to uh, China. That's why Zen was so brand new, even though it had been in China for hundreds of years. It was new to Japan because the monks hadn't encountered it. Uh, Dogen was the second famous monk to have gone in that period. Um, and um, also, you know, there were a lot of storms. Uh, there was apparently a lot of piracy. Uh, uh, the Japanese blamed the Koreans and the Koreans blamed the Chinese and, and so forth about who, you know, the, uh, the who were the pirates in, the, in those waterways. But um, you know, it's said that people who traveled in that time, uh, the monks who traveled in that time and others who traveled, whether they were uh, uh, for commercial or cultural reasons, um, often, you know, didn't necessarily expect that they were going to come back in one piece, um, e- either because of the travel itself or because difficulties they'd have in China. And we know that when Dogen got to China, it took him several months to get off the ship and into the uh, monastic system. Um, and we don't know exactly the reasons he was sick. He, he had trouble with his kind of visa or his, his paperwork. Um, there's, there's a lot of theories about that, but, um, you know, Dogen is consumed by the great doubt at that point, which he supposedly had developed in, um, about 10 years before when he first experimented with, uh, Tendai, um, Buddhism as a young monk at the age of 12 or 13. And he left that and started practicing Zen and he was practicing Zazen for a number of years. And he went with his uh, teacher, Myozen, and a couple of other monks to China. Um, but, um, you know, w- uh, we have to assume that the great that was foremost on his mind. And what drove him, you know, and they had debates because um, uh, should, um, should Myozen um, leave, um, make the trip when, when uh, somebody close to him was sick. Um, and, um, you know, Dogen was in support of the idea, like the Dharma counts the most and, and let's let's make this trip. And the political circumstances had made it a little bit easier to make the trip. And so I imagine him kind of teetering, tottering when he gets to that point in the waterway. And, and, and you know, the positive side is that he's kind of releasing the tensions, the preoccupations with the doubt, perhaps uh, seeing things anew. But as he says in the passage, he, he, he knows he's seeing it wrong. Uh, at that moment, you know, your perception is wrong. Um, and you know that um, you, you can tell yourself that, but it's hard to uh, deny that it appears round. Um, and then he goes into a kind of yoga charabu uh, view of it. Um, uh, how do the fish see it? How do the dragon see it? How, you know, how do other kinds of uh, beings uh, perceive this situation? So um, that kind of personal reflection uh, or the existential moment in Dogen's biography is something that I think was very interestingly um, um brought up by uh, Nishiari Boksan, as Taigen mentioned, who was um, who, who wrote one of the first main uh, modern commentaries uh, that was published in 1906. And he, um, Nishiari, started the tradition of what's known as Genzo-e, or Genzo study retreats, where you take a, a fascicle or you take a passage 
and um, and and study that for um, for you know a number of uh, days or weeks. And apparently, uh, in the in the Edo period in the 17 and 1800s, famous monks like Menzan, who was probably the single most famous interpreter of Dogen from that period, apparently had thousand day retreats. They said and and you know gave lectures um, every um, almost every day um, to his followers, um, including. Uh, some of those lectures were held at a prominent temple in uh, Tokyo. So it must have been a very exciting time when all these uh, ideas were being expressed about Dogen. But, uh, but at the same time, um, all these interpretations show that uh, nobody quite knew the answer. There's no definitive uh, view. And uh, that's the way Dogen wanted it, I think. The creative ambiguity is the idea um, that um, I don't think that Dogen necessarily invented it. I think he was very influenced by the Chinese Zen approaches, but he certainly took it to another degree of saying, we have to turn things upside down and topsy-turvy and look at it from different angles. But in the end, um, you, the disciple, you, the reader, uh, you, the audience uh, in the assembly that's uh, hearing my um, lectures and sermons is going to come to your own conclusion. And, um, you know, then you get into the... uh, delicate and intricate situation. How are those conclusions judged by the, uh, by the teacher? But, um, and, and Dogen doesn't dwell on that as much as some of the um, uh, Chinese uh, Zen works do. So I think, um, uh, Taigen, I'll turn it back to you. You're muted. You're muted. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Stephen. Um, there's so much to say about all of these and we have four more papers and not so much time. So I'm going to, I'm going to go very quickly on the next two. Um, but Stephen, you can add uh, important points. Pamela Winfield, who's a professor at a university in, New York, in North Carolina, uh, talked about Zen bodies of knowledge. Her, her uh, research is very interesting. She started off talking about visual uh, uh, objects, uh, uh, sculptures and paintings. Then she talked about material, uh, ritual uh, objects, and she's shifting to talking about bodies and, and how does the teaching get embodied or the practice. So um, just briefly, she brought up a, a passage from Bendo Wa, uh, the self-fulfillment samadhi that I've talked about a lot here. Oh, I wanted to say, I'm sorry, about about the Genjo Koan. For those of you who don't know it, if you go to our Ancient Dragon website and look under Chance and scroll, and scroll down there, you can find our, our version, the version that we chant of Genjo Koan. So if people want to look at that text, it's uh, very juicy in lots of ways, as Stephen talked about. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, Pamela brought up uh, Bendoa and the self-fulfillment samadhi. She talked about it in terms of its relationship to Chinese cosmology, uh, and one of the themes I, I can say in terms of a lot of these papers is how Zen and Dogen and, and Zen in general does not stand alone or separate from the rest of Japanese and even Chinese Buddhism. That uh, uh, Dogen was a Tendai monk from the Chinese Chentai school, influenced by the Lotus Sutra, that uh, a lot of the, um, that sometimes Zen is presented as something separate, but actually it's very clear more and more in modern scholarship that it's very much connected. So Pamela looked at the passage in 
that I've commented on a lot that about earth, grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles um, being connected to the Zazen practitioner and this mutual guidance between them. And then she added the wind and water movement and pointed out how those five earth, grasses and trees as wood, fences and walls as metal, tiles and pebbles as fire because they, uh, well, they, they, they include fire and um, wind and water as space or literally feng shui. Wind and water is feng shui. So this Chinese cosmology is embedded in Dogen and in this section of Dogen that I've talked about a lot. Uh, I've talked about it in terms of how Dogen says that the Zen practitioner uh, is connected to the environment and there's a mutual guidance between them. But uh, she brought brought out how this goes back to Chinese cosmology. She also talked about that in terms of the monastery structure that Dogen and later Soto uh, teachers constructed, which has been compared to the human body in terms of the structure of the Dharma Hall, the Buddha Hall, the uh, monks hall where they do Zazen, the uh, gate, the, the mountain gate, and that this uh, also has a connection to these this five elements cosmology from China. So again, this is about uh, connecting Dogen to this Chinese cosmology. Uh, Stephen, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, uh, yes. Brief, briefly? Yeah, briefly. Okay. So the um, I think um, uh, one of her themes is that in Vendoa, which was uh, one of Dogen's earliest writings in 1231, and his first temple is opened two years later, um, 1233, Koshoji Temple, um, that Dogen was trying to mobilize support um, and um, uh, uh, to to gain donations, to gain supporters, uh, benefactors who would help uh, with the construction of that temple, which was apparently successful. And by um, integrating the uh, Chinese cosmology um, in an indirect way, um, which was something that would have been part of the intellectual worldview in Japan at that time as well, um, that, um, you know, this, this would help to create a kind of discourse that would have a, a broad appeal and uh, help to present um, the new Zen teachings, which after all were brand new. And one of the brand new things about the Zen teachings was how to um, lay out the temple structure with the um, order of the buildings known as the seven hall structure uh, that eventually gets compared to the human body. So that the idea is in a way that, um, and when you walk into the gate, into the temple grounds, you're walking in the body of the Buddha. Um, and uh, that, that sense of intimacy uh, uh, that you're, you know, the, and the unity of uh, macrocosm and microcosm and, and history and, and present time is, is uh, an interesting theme that she also brought out. Yes, thank you very much. And, and uh, how to appeal to the current culture to help develop and, and fund a new temple is something that our Sangha will have to look at. Although the Chinese cosmology is probably not going to be part of it. Uh, so we'll have to look at that as over the next couple of years. Um, so thank you, Stephen. I want to mention and briefly again another uh, paper by Marta Sanvito, who's a very interesting scholar. She's a young scholar at UC Berkeley. Uh, her topic was called Deconstructing Heresy, Pre-Modern Secret Knowledge and the Making of Modern Zen. So uh, she works mostly in Soto Zen, but to, but in this paper she was looking at 
a particular Rinzai, Japanese Rinzai lineage. And uh, just a couple of points about what she presented. It it was was pretty wide ranging, but she talked about how uh, the, 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 the text she was looking at incorporated elements of Shugendo, which is the uh, traditional Japanese uh, practice, mountain practice, kind of Vajrayana practice. So again, this is an example of how Zen was not some pure thing separate from the culture around it or from Buddhist traditions. Um, She looked at some kirigami, which are um, kind of, special teachings that are passed down in the lineage. A couple of you know about this, but uh, very interesting because uh, the one that she showed featured the Lee hexagram, the, the double fire hexagram, which is also mentioned in the song of the Jewel Marisamadi, uh, the precious Marisamadi that we sometimes chant uh, from Dongshan, the founder of uh, the Saodong or Soto Chan Soto Zen in the uh, 800s in China. So a lot of this kind of cultural um, context is deeply embedded in, in, Zen, in Zen aspects. Um, so uh, there was a whole lot that, that Marta Zambito presented, but do you want to add anything to this, Stephen? Um, yes. Um, the... Um that's a good, very good introduction to it. And, and um, Marta, um, I think her work will uh, soon emerge um, and, and gain a reputation because she's covering those couple of centuries between the 1300s and the 1600s that have been this, you know, for the most part, a, a black hole in terms of how it's uh, lack of understanding so, so far in the West. And, and she's filling in a lot of these gaps. And there was a lot of interaction between um, Soto and Rinzai uh, monks and temples at that period. Um, and uh, she particularly focuses on the, uh, in some of her other research, she focuses on the five positions, which of course Taigen has, has uh, talked about, I think particularly in the, um, just, uh, just what's the title? Just this, just is, this is it, Dongshan and the practice yeah, of yeah, suchness. Right, so, right. so going back to the Jewel Mare Samadhi. Yeah. Yeah. Which goes back to Dongshan. And then Dogen didn't deal with it very much, but it, it was important in, um, in Soto discourse uh, after Dogen and for several centuries. So I think um, we're, you know, as, as her work gets published, um, uh, we'll learn more about, a lot more about that time period, which is, uh, help, helps to connect back with Dongsheng. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Um, so I do want to leave time for discussion, but the next two... Um, papers deal with 20th century developments and are uh, relevant for us in various ways. Um, So McKellum Ross from Stanford talked about the invention of lay Buddhist choirs in modern Soto Zen. This is something that's not been so much a part of American Zen. And I know a number of you, uh, Gyoshin and others who like choir singing, uh, this will be uh, very interesting. So um, this is something that developed like around 1950 to 1952. Um, I have to get out my notes to, to, I forgot to write down the name, but there was a previous, tri- so we chant kind of in a uh, monotone, which is one major style of 
uh, chanting in Buddhism. But there had been previously to this 1950 movement a um, uh, a uh, tradition of shomyo or goeka, which was a kind of melodic devotional chanting in, in Soto Zen. But what developed uh, and is called baika uh, is very interesting. So I want to talk about this a little, and um, this is something for us to look into. Um, so again, there was one person, a monk named Niwa Butsuan, who was at a temple called Tokien, um, and uh, he really uh, pretty much single-handedly developed this baika uh, uh, kind of chanting. Uh, I saw it when I lived in Japan and it uses bells, but it's a very melodic chanting. Um, it wasn't so initially, but within a couple of years or so, first he had to, he had to struggle with the headquarter temple on Eheji to get it accepted. Um, but, um, these chants, these Baika chants, uh, eventually were, were for women, for lay women. Uh, it was a way that Soto Zen school incorporated the lay, lay women disciples. Um, and uh, actually, Niwa Butsuan is from, was from Shizuoka, which is where uh, Suzuki Roshi's temple in Soin is, uh, that area. Um, so um, these are basically used, uh, often used in memorial anniversary uh celebrations for, and mostly they're about Dogen and Keizan, who was the other second, the second founder, Keizan Jokin, of Soto Zen, five generations after Dogen. The first one was for Shakyamuni. So they have, a, these are hymns. There's a text to it that were developed and written by um, particular people in Soto Zen. But interestingly, the melodies they use come from Shingon, which is the Japanese Vajrayana practice. So again, this is another example of how not just Soto and Rinzai interacting, but also uh, Zen interacting with the native Japanese traditions like Shugendo, but also with the other schools like Shingon, which is a very, one of the most important schools in Japanese Buddhism before Zen, um, along with Tendai. So, um, so these are, these baika are, um, were hymns to uh, mostly Dogen and Keizan. Um, and um, so part, part of this is the reality that a lot of the lay people in Soto Zen weren't as focused on Zazen as uh, we are in American Soto Zen, that there were lots of devotional practices, that, that faith and devotion is very much a part of all of Buddhism, including including in Dogen's writings and including in Soto Zen. And so for the lay people, uh, the, the, the women who came to do baika choirs probably didn't do so much Zazen. There was a question about that that came up. But they but it's, it's this is a very popular form uh, where there are these very melodic chanting. Now, just... Um, to conclude on that, this is something that is entering uh, American Soto Zen just in recent years. So Zuiko Redding, who is the uh, uh, priest in uh, in Iowa, uh, she 
trained. Uh, she was at, at a temple monastery where I practiced in uh, Kyushu in Japan. She also practiced with Katagiri Roshi people. But she's been working in importing people from Japan to teach baika. So she's doing baika, uh, choir work. Uh, and I think some of the people in the Katagiri lineage up in Minnesota are also doing it. So maybe after the pandemic, this is something to look into, and this is something that we might incorporate. It's a whole different aspect of what we think of as Zen practice beyond Zazen, uh, beyond our usual chanting, but a kind of melodic ceremonial chanting that commemorates. Uh, so there are many of these different ch- uh, hymns to Dogen and hymns to Kazan. Uh, uh, a couple of them were apparently uh, uh, composed. Well, a couple. Well, there's one example of a melody that was composed by uh, a Japanese temple wife, I think. But uh, anyway, this is a whole different aspect of Zen practice than what we usually think of as just uh, zazen and meditation. So uh, it's it's very much popular in uh, Japanese Soto Zen and something for us to consider as we develop our practice of uh, Soto Zen in America. So, uh, Stephen, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, Yes, I'd like to uh, do a screen share for a moment and um, so I can play... um Uh, a few um, seconds. Well, I'll stop there. Um, It's just to give an impression. Um, That's great. Thank you for giving us a feeling of it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the ringing of the bells accompanies, as as um, as Mikel uh, pointed out. Um, even though some forms of uh, chanting and singing and um, reciting in a musical way had been around for centuries, um, the the baika is the Soto name for a tradition that kind of started in Shingon in the 1920s um, and and spread to some of the other um, Buddhist schools and then. Um, in the early 1950s, which was the 700th anniversary of Dogen's death. And these 50 50 year anniversaries, including most recently 2002, have been occasions for uh, new developments, innovations in various ways in the sect. So one of the things they they did in the post-war period and and trying to get more lay people involved and and women participants was to emphasize the uh, the bike uh, uh, singing. And so, um, I, you know, um, uh, when, when Michele gets a chance to get back to Japan after the, uh, after the COVID, she, she's going to do more, uh, research on, on, uh, kind of the sociology of the, of the choir networks. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Michele is interesting. She's actually started as a jazz saxophonist and, uh, but then became this, uh, Zen scholar. She's at Stanford now. Uh, so she's participated actively herself in some of these choirs. So I know there are numbers of people in our sangha who are musicians and, and who lament the, that uh, our Zen tradition is not uh, doesn't have music. Well, we do. Or it's it's in Japan, and it's up to uh, us to 
uh, imported. And we have uh, help from Zwicko and some of the people in Minnesota to uh, to try to develop uh, this kind of choir tradition. It's uh, these are separate events, separate from you know zazen sitting, but uh, but all of them are the, the texts of them. I don't know if if they're for English translations or if we could translate them into English. Uh, maybe that's not necessary, but or maybe that's not as necessary in the choir singing. Um, I guess. Uh, excuse but, me. Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but some of them are based on Dogen's uh, poetry, his his walk up. Yes. Um, also, I wanted to, uh, on Michaela, uh, in a different kind of musical ritual, um, she worked with some local priests um, uh, maybe 12, 15 years ago, and um, and they uh, and she played saxophone actually in some of the rituals. With, um, so, so she, you know, she had her cake and ate it too, so to speak. <laughs> so, this is something for us to explore moving forward: how to how to include music in our in our forms. So uh, very interesting. And uh, yeah, one of the points what, that she made was that Soto School was the very last of these schools to incorporate this kind of musical choirs. Uh, they'd been in Shingon, they'd been in uh, Jodo's, the Pure Land schools, they'd been, they were started in Rinzai a little bit before Soto. So anyway, uh, this is very interesting. And again, certainly a new direction for us in terms of thinking about uh, not just Zen studies, but Zen practice. So um, we can look at that more. Um, and, and if you have questions about it, please bring that up. But the last paper uh, I want to talk about is um, was from Richard Jaffe called Zen and D.T. Suzuki's Columbia University Lectures from 1952 to 53. I want to talk about Richard a little. He was... Uh, uh, a practitioner at San Francisco Zen Center. In fact, he was the Tenzo at Tassajara Monastery when I uh, first lived there. So he he did uh, uh, a lot of Zen practice first. And uh, he's not the only, uh, well, he be, and then he became a very prominent um, academic uh, professor at Duke University. He's a very prominent Buddhist scholar, particularly looking at modern uh, Zen, modern and modern Buddhism generally from the Meiji period, from the mid nineteenth century on. So he's a very prominent scholar. He's not the. By, he, there are many other uh, academic scholars who started out as practitioners, as Richard did. So, um, but he's he focused his his current work. He's done a bunch of things, but his current work is focusing on D.T. Suzuki. The other Suzuki is, is sometimes said besides Suzuki Roshi, who founded our lineage at San Francisco Zen Center. And D.T. Suzuki, probably most of you have heard of, he was the, uh, he introduced, well, he, he, he first came to America with his teacher, Soen Shaku, in the, was the 1908 uh, Chicago Exposition or 1904, anyway, early on. He was a Rinzai Koan practitioner, a student of the Engakuji, uh, which is a temple in Kamakura, lineage of Rinzai. Um, but one of the things about D.T. Suzuki has been he's been kind of a straw man for modern Buddhist and Zen scholarship. There are numbers of um, prominent American Buddhist scholars who made their career on attacking D.T. Suzuki. 
<laughs> so Richard is trying to rescue him from that. Um, he, uh, uh, he mentioned that D.T. Suzuki has been called a charlatan. Uh, and uh, I don't think that's fair at all. I would say that, you know, a lot of people thought of, of what D.T. Suzuki presented in his many books and writings as what Zen was when he first came the, and was popularizing Zen in the 50s. Uh, and, th- and that's what, uh, and I'll come back to that. Uh, some people thought of that as the only form of Zen, uh, but actually, um, you know, he, and, and D.T. Suzuki doesn't talk about Zazen much. I don't think he ever talks about Dogen or Soto Zen. So uh, what D.T. Suzuki presented was limited, but he certainly was, uh, you know, uh, ver- very well respected and qualified within his own branch of Rinzai Zen. One of the things that uh, Richard talks about is that when um, uh, D.T. Suzuki was um, teaching at Columbia University in New York, the lectures that uh, that Richard is working on are from 52 to 53, and he's working from transcripts of that, but uh, he D.T. Suzuki was teaching there till 1957, and at that same time, he was kind of central to uh, salons in New York City that helped to spread awareness of Zen. And people like John Cage came, psychologists like Eric Fromm, many artists and scholars, Alan Watts visited, many Gurdjieff people. So there was a whole salon of, of, of people in New York in the 50s who D.T. Suzuki was one of the central people in these so this was uh, this ver- his version of Zen was what was popularized initially before people like Suzuki Roshi and Maizumi Roshi and other uh, practice teachers came to America. Um, D.T. Suzuki was talking about the intellectual aspect of Zen, not the practice aspect. Um, so just to say a little bit more about the content of what. Um, and, and Richard talked about this a little bit, what the content of what uh, D.T. Suzuki was teaching in the 50s, uh, uh, again, was focused on koans, not on zazen, uh, again, from this particular branch of Zen. He did discuss the, uh, and wrote about the, what's called in Japanese, the Kegon Kyo, the Flower Ornament Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, which we, uh, I think, this week we're going to have our monthly reading of if, if uh, Dylan is here somewhere still, um, so that we do we do a monthly reading Friday evenings of the, from this and uh, D.T. Suzuki really introduced that teaching to the West. He introduced many uh, a number of other teachings, uh, including the Awakening of Faith. He focused on the Lankavatara Sutra, a major Yogacara Sutra. He did the first translation of There's a New, There's a new One by Red Pine. Uh, one of the other things that uh, Richard said about D.T. Suzuki's teaching is that he emphasized, rather than zazen or meditation, he emphasized vow. And I think that's important for us too, this sense of you know, it's one of the paramitas in, for bodhisattvas, this idea of vow or commitment and the uh, intention towards uh, bodhisattva practice. And we chant the four bodhisattva vows 
usually at the end of our events. So um, that's just a little bit about what what Richard presented. But I I think uh, he's, you know, it's interesting to look at D.T. Suzuki, see the limitations, but also see that he really, he was very committed, was very uh, energetic, published a huge amount of uh, texts. Uh, I still like uh, Zen and Japanese culture. Parts of it have been uh, critiqued by more modern scholars, but he talked about Japanese culture as a reflection of Zen too. So that's a little bit on that paper. Uh, Stephen, could you please add to that? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Suzuki, one point I want to make briefly about Suzuki and Soto Zen is that uh, in at least one very important way, he was involved with um, Soto Zen. In fact, in the 1930s, um, he was particularly invited uh, by a Soto Tempo, which held this old uh, manuscript. I won't go into the details, but it was a very important manuscript. And they they chose D.T. Suzuki to be the scholar to come to uh, look at the manuscript for the first time um, and and publish it. Um, and he did publish a version of it. And so this was um, so so he did not he was not totally ignoring or oblivious to uh, Soto Zen. Although you know you're right that um, 90 percent of his works um, or more don't don't mention uh, Dogen. Another key feature about Suzuki is that um, you know he's born in 1870, first came to America in 1893 um, to be a translator for the World Parliament of Religion. Stayed in America, wrote uh, learning you know was very good at English. Wrote a lot of books in English. Wrote in Japanese. But he's probably most famous for uh, a series of lectures he gave at Columbia University, which is what um, uh, Richard Jaffe is working on, in the 1950s. And so um, all these years later, and he's now in his uh, mid-80s, late 80s, um, that's when uh, that's what we best know him for. So that's a very interesting feature. He died in 1966, and... Uh, for those uh, old timers uh, who uh, you know who remember when he was a very big presence in Zen, and that w- that was kind of Zen for for those years in the late fifties and early sixties, um, you know the influence is strong, and it's good that um, that Richard Jaffe is is coming back to uh, restore an uh, an appreciation for that. Thank you, Stephen. So that's a lot of material, <laughs> um, to say the least. But uh, if any, so we do have time, thankfully, for some discussion, questions, responses. So again, we talked about Dogen in various ways, um, the different uh, uh, different versions of Dogen in modern times. Uh, This uh, passage from Genjo Koan about going out into the middle of the ocean, uh, the uh, ways in which he incorporated uh, Chinese cosmology, um, and uh, also then questions or comments about Baika, this modern uh, Japanese uh, choir singing, or about D.T. Suzuki. So there's a lot of material. Um, Shingyu or David, maybe you can help me call on people. Uh, if There's two screens, so uh, you, can all, you can raise your hand physically, or you could go to the participants' screen on the bottom, and go to the bottom of that and just hit push raise hand and uh, then we can call on you. So uh, any questions, comments, responses to any aspect of any of what we've talked about, uh, very welcome. Douglas has his hand up. 
Douglas, you're still muted, I think. I'm not on mute. Let's see what I can There, There, we can hear now. Okay. Uh, Stephen, I, I really have appreciated your Flowers Blooming on a Withered Tree, the book about Guillaume's verse comments on Shobogenzo. But an interesting thing is you've also written a very interesting book about uh, the Blue Cliff Record. And um, aside, and in addition, your other works on Dogen and Soto Zen. So that's kind of a wide range of different topics in Zen. What are you working on next? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, some people who, uh, you know, aunts and uncles type of people say, uh, it's all one topic. What, what are you talking about? You know, but I appreciate that you, uh, you have a sense of the uh, diversity of those topics. So um, right now, um, as, as you know, as readers of uh, uh, Dogen's extensive record know um, that uh, there's a lot of um, uh, Chinese style poetry um, in, in, the, uh, in the extensive record. And if you add it all up, um, according to a modern scholar, um, there's about 450 uh, poems. Um, back in the 1700s, uh, Menzan, uh, the famous scholar of Dogen at that period, uh, created a collection of 150 out of those uh, 450. And um, so, you know, um, of course, looking at um, the versions by Taigen and, um, and Shohaku, um, I'm, I'm kind of doing my own translation of those and, um, and also comments on that and trying to situate that in the... Um, um, so it, to me, it's kind of an extension of the Gion, of, of the translation of the poetry of Gion. Uh, and, and and more uh, more understanding of that, but um, I'd like to go back to the Blue Cliff record, and I'd like to talk more about Dogen in China. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that um, without. Um, uh, uh, well, let's put it this way: um, I, I've always said uh, I, I still feel that the single main um, book that I would recommend to somebody if you want to. Um, study uh, Dogen. Um, maybe this is a little strong, but, uh, you know, one of the main books to look at is Blue Cliff Record, because Dogen uh, is so indebted to the style, uh, the teaching style, the literary flourishes, uh, the overall discourse. And so I want to look more deeply at some of those connections uh, down the road. Thank you for that question. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, uh, so, Ron Bass, um, you have a question. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, thinking, Stephen, thinking about the transmission of Dogen's writings from the time of his death through the 16th century, uh, to what extent might this have been affected by the, the following? A, the... Uh, the general level level of literacy in Japan at the time, B, uh, Black Death that decimated at least decimated Europe starting in 1348 and might or might not have started earlier or later in Japan, and C, um, I don't know when uh, printing press was introduced into Japan. Gutenberg Press in Europe was appeared around 1440, uh, so. To, to what point were uh, manuscripts circulating only as manuscripts, and at what point 
did uh, movable type enable a wider dissemination of works? And uh, I guess my my final thing is: Do yeah. you have a recommendation on uh, a good general medieval history of Japan that has been translated into English? Mm. Well, uh, good. That's a very good point. So on the printing press, uh, of course, people say that um, it actually came from China and and migrated through the Silk Road into Europe. So Japan had printing, um, you know, how sophisticated it was. But uh, they say that the very first Soto Zen uh, publication was actually Gion, the fifth abbot, uh, uh, his his recorded sayings, and then um, shortly after that, um, Dogen was being uh, you know Dogen's um, some of Dogen's works were were published, not Shobogenzo though. So do, do, Shobogenzo was in in um, manuscript form. I I don't necessarily think it's because printing was unavailable, however, um, but it, it was it was a kind of um, hidden document, so to speak. You know, they wanted it to be kept to the people who were knowledgeable enough to understand it, and not just widely circulated so um you had to go to heiji and make a copy of it basically uh that's my understanding um in terms of the uh black death that's an interesting point i I hadn't thought about whether that affected uh japan in that period actually over the weekend we had a a historian of japanese um uh, medical history uh named william johnson who i think teaches at wesleyan college i never met him before but anyway we could have asked him that that fascinating uh, point, and you know, it'd be very interesting to see um, on on the um, uh, on the literacy. Uh, the monks were literate. I mean, they they and and they could uh, they, you know they could read Chinese at that time. They obviously knew different um, dialects and different vernacular uh, approaches to Japanese. Of course, Dogen's writing was is particularly difficult in the way he crosses over between the Chinese and Japanese. Um, so. Uh, fluently, but not in a way that's always uh, decipherable. So the, the sheer difficulty might have been an imposition. And there was one other point I think you made it. Uh, if you know of a generalized history of medieval Japan that has been translated into uh, English. Well, um, I mean, I think the, um, in terms of um, Zen, I, I would still recommend uh, Heinrich de Moulin's, uh book that, um, was published originally in the 1980s, and and I think it's been reprinted in terms of uh, you know Zen, uh, the the medieval history of Zen, um, medieval uh, you know one, you know Peter Haskell, I think Tigan, you knew him at Columbia maybe, yes, and, you know, and he's published a number of interesting books, and he had a series of articles in in a Zen magazine, I think it's called Dharma Notes or something, maybe 10, 15 years ago that talked about some of the medieval writings between Rinzai and Soto that I find very useful. It's something you can, um, you can Google and I think and find those, um, those old issues online. Um, but that's, that's within Zen in terms of the medieval history more generally. Um, I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of books out there. I'm not sure what the main, what the one main uh, book would be at this off the top of my head. However, I'm sorry. I would just add again William Botiford's uh, history of me- yes, medieval, of course. That med- is, medieval uh, Soto's. That focuses on Soto's end, but that's a very valuable. Yes, and resource. and and Martin Colcutt's uh, Five Mountains, um, and then you know there's a very interesting uh, book by a guy named Joe uh, Parker, um, Joseph Parker, who um, was a scholar who published a book on um, 
on Zen uh, art and painting. So it's mostly Rinzai. It's mostly uh, Kyoto um, um, temples, but that that also covers that um, 13, 1400 time period. Great. Thank you. So, um, uh, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, just Hi. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you, uh, Dr. Hein and Dr. Layton for uh, the talk. Um, I just had a kind of brief uh, uh, question. You know, thinking back uh, on on Dr. Hein's, Dr. Hein's comments on um, the Yamanaki Kaichu and um, Dogen's acceptance of, um, well, uh, kind of Dogen realizing the, the limitations of of, of humans uh, reaching, uh, uh, you know, the imperfect view of of the absolute. Um, it got me to think about uh, some of other some of Dogen's other writings, such as the Tenzo Kyokan, where he kind of sets this uh, very high standard. Of, of 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 performance, like you can't waste a single grain of rice, you know, when you're when you're cooking, um, and and that kind of got me thinking, like, is 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 Dogen encouraging us to kind of emphasize on that journey towards enlightenment, and that in itself is enlightenment, or or um, uh, you know, that's that's kind of like uh, my uh, thought process uh, when I when I thought about Dr. Hines' presentation. Yeah, well, uh, um, thank you for the, uh, the, the Tenzo Kyokun is um, very interesting because it talks about Dogen's arrival in China when he meets um, a couple of um, Tenzo um, that are very influential to him because of their dedication, their commitment, their, you know, they're, they're in kind of overdrive in a good sense without um, thinking about themselves and, um yeah, one, one of the things he says is that when he got back to in in, in Shobogenzo Zui Monkey, um, he says, and maybe in Tenzo Kyokan, I can't quite remember, but between the two, he talks about when he got back to Japan and Asai was no longer uh, alive, leading um, the temple in Kyoto. And Myozen, of course, died, who went with uh, Dogen, died when he was in China. So uh, Keninji was... Uh, was kind of a drift and that's why Dogen knew that he had to um, create his own temple. And um, he, um, and one of the symptomatic uh, problems in uh, Keninji temple was that he said the, the cooks, you know, the, here, he, one of the cooks probably never lifted a pan in his, his life, you know, and, um, uh, and just kind of ordered fancy food that he thought would be interesting because, uh, you know, if a, if a donor, uh, if a secular donor was willing to um, subsidize that. And, and so, he, you know, he focusing so much on that, on that specific detail and, and the rice. And then in um, the Eihei Shingi, that, that is one of the books that uh, Taigen and Shohaku um, had, had translated. Um, they come back and talk about um, various officers, right? I think it's in the Chichi Shingi uh, uh, chapter, uh, various officers, including uh, the Tenzo. So, um, but yeah, going back to Tenzo Kyokun, those couple of dialogues he has with those uh, cooks are, are, you know, before he meets uh, his teacher, Ru Jing, a couple of years later, you can see uh, there that's continuing that path. If that's, if that was the implication of your question that, that, um, you know, maybe, maybe he, he had a kind of awakening being out to sea. And then when he arrives, he runs into some obstacles, but those cooks inspire him so much. And even though some of the leading monks that he, he meets at various temples before Rujing don't inspire him. And he feels like they're going through the motions. They um, you know, their teaching is kind of mechanical. 
they they care about their pride and their reputation more than um, more than the dharma. The the cooks are the ones who embody it for sure. And you know those those couple dialogues, you you know, we can read those dozens of times and still get something out of it. I think. Uh, if I can just add to that, uh, and I appreciate your question. Um, and I think this is one of the top, one of the themes in Stephen's paper, the connection between, um, well, we can say the absolute and the, and the particular or the ultimate truth and, and our limited perceptions. Uh, but Dogen, I think, emphasizes, and the Tenzo Kyokun is a very good example, he emphasizes how to, and, I've, and this is something you've all heard, you know, ancient dragon people have heard me say a lot, but he emphasizes how the ultimate can be expressed in ordinary everyday uh, activity. And this is, uh, you know, a major theme, I would say, for Dogen. And, the te- and you know, the, the example you gave of telling the, the, the Tenzo, the head cook, that to not waste a single grain of rice, and he goes into great detail about the numbers of grains of rice and so forth, um, you know, that this emphasis on not some ideal absolute reality, but how do, uh, how does this get expressed in uh, more worldly forms than in our interaction with the world? And as Paul Disco has talked about in terms of, you know, uh, buildings and, and carpentry and, you know, all of the practical matters uh, that's a, a great deal of Dogen's emphasis, of course, balanced with Zazen, where we do get some sense of something uh, beyond something ultimate. So thank you for the question. Thank you for, for the responses. Uh, Joe Kai has his hand up. Hi, Stephen. Um, you briefly touched on the uh, secular interpretation of Dogen, but I was wondering if you could expand a little on that and how we can look at Dogen if we kind of separate him from the religious practice. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you if you look at Watsuji, which is translated, I think the title is Purifying Zen. Um, and the translator's name was Steve um, Bein, B-E-I-N, or Bain. I'm not sure how he pronounces it, but the... Um, um, you know, uh, uh, Watsuchi says in the first couple of pages, um, oh, they, you know, the Soto leaders are all scoundrels these days. <laughs> you know, they've, they've imprisoned Dogen and we have to liberate it. Um, it's, it's, it's a very intriguing and, you know, provocative, uh, passage in the end, I think his interpretation, and I'm not sure if I could show historically that he read, uh, this guy Nishiari Boksan, who was kind of the epitome of the Soto uh, orthodoxy, trying to bring it into modern, you know, into the 20th century. But I don't think they're really that far apart when you see what Watsuji is talking about uh, when he interprets a few of the uh, fascicles from uh, from Shobo Genzo. So I think, um, and I think uh, it was pointed out um, over the weekend that, you know, one of the things that Watsuji does is emphasize that Dogen, his commitment to truth and his very uncompromising, and he he would not take uh, donations from the Shogun uh, um, if he didn't think they were sincere. And he, he you know, in a, in a famous story, he punished the monk who did, uh, behind Dogen's back, take the donation from the Shogun. And he was very upset with that. And he, um, uh, 
he 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 had a generous spirit. I think there was a compassionate spirit. I think the Chobogenzo Sui Monkey, a lot of the stories he talks about, because he talks sometimes there he talks about secular leaders in in Chinese and Japanese history or mythology, and he's trying to emphasize uh, the compassionate, caring view, but at the same time. Uh, you know, the strictness and the kind of puritanical spirit in a positive sense is, is, is there. So I think Watsuji is trying to bring that out, but, you know, it's kind of uncanny when you look at um, uh, Dogen's being, being time uh, fascicle and some of his kind of philosophical uh, writings about time and permanence, death, and, you know, how they shape our understanding of reality and, you know, some correspondences perhaps to um, Einstein and uh, uh, quantum uh, physics um, are, you know, seem seem quite apparent. And some people want to bring bring those out. Um, uh, though, so, uh, um, you know, so so did Dogen have a kind of view uh, guided by his meditation that allowed him to be so objective and neutral in observing reality? that he could have a degree of insight that went beyond um, that, you know, even, even other great Buddhist uh, thinkers throughout history um, and, and captured something that's so uh, modern. And then in his writing style with that ambiguity and, and using all these intricate paradoxes and word plays and, and kind of word puzzles in various ways, um, uh, uh, you know, does that kind of anticipate uh, T.S. Eliot and what sometimes is called literary modernism? Of course, Eliot and other writers of the time were very much uh, influenced by early translations of not necessarily of Dogen, but of of um, of, of Buddhist and and Asian uh, thought. So, um, so I think you know, I think for a lot of people, um, the appeal is. Uh, of course, is that uh, is the teaching uh, for other people. OK, there's ideas and maybe those ideas deal with the environment. Maybe they deal with uh, perce- human perception and temporality and philosophical issues that have been long discussed. Um, maybe they deal with um, um, how to approach um, ethical issues uh, in terms of his uncompromising uh, view um, uh, you know, Bodiford's point was, hey, we shouldn't take we shouldn't strip Dogen away from the fact that he was basically a religious figure who who was trying to uh, teach his sangha. And I, I I think that's that's a simple point. But I think I agree with that point. I, I've tried to answer your question. Yes, uh, just uh, amen to that. Um, he was a religious teacher. Uh, he did have a, a sangha. But uh, just to uh, just to add to what Stephen said, that the fact that Watsuji's uh, book in the, from the year 1920s is now published, translated into English and published. So just uh, for yeah. your information. Certifying Zen is the title. On my screen, so would you like to go ahead? Sorry, you said certifying Zen? Purifying. Purifying. So um, other questions, comments, responses on any aspect of any of what has been discussed, please. You can raise your hand physically or uh, uh, so uh, Nyozan has his hand up. Uh, yes, thank you uh, for, for this interesting sort of overview. Um, I guess I have a question that may relate uh, most to Stephen's paper um, that he was talking about yesterday. And, uh, and I don't know if this question is really 
uh, picks up on where the paper goes or not. But I'm, I'm you know, this passage, uh, Yamanaki Kaichu, um, and when Taigen was giving an overview, he was talking, he talked about, um, apparently in this paper, you evoke imagination and so on. And I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about Dogen and Im- imagination, because it occurs to me that there's considerable distance actually between, you know, in that situation of being in a literal or a metaphorical ocean, you know, on the one hand, there can be the recognition, uh, the really taking in that, that you cannot see the whole picture. So there's knowledge. I'm not seeing the whole picture. That on the one hand, on the other hand, going to sort of imagining what, you know, what it is that you're not seeing, uh, which strikes me as it's potentially a very dangerous thing, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of, um, the problems that human beings deal with come from making stuff up about what they don't really know. And so I don't know if this really picks up on anything you dealt with in the paper, but I just wonder if you can sort of talk about how Dogen straddles that tension. I mean, one of the cliches about Buddhism is about, you know, it says, well, uh, you practice so that you can see things how you are, which would seem to rule out the category of imagining too much. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good question. And and could lead to, um, you know, uh, an in-depth discussion. So to try to touch it uh, briefly as best I can. Um, yes. Uh, see things as they are. And I think that's what, partly what Genjo Koan means. It's like the koan is right in front of you. You're just, you know, uh, but your eyes are open to seeing things as they are. Um, you're not seeing anything different. You're just seeing things as they are which we don't usually see because we have the blinders, we have the filters, we have the biases and assumptions that, that um, uh, uh, disallow us uh, for the most part. However, you know, Dogen is famous for having, you know, a set of discourses, flowers in the sky, which was a, um, you know, a kind of idiom that was used to refer to the understanding of cataracts back in those days um, that when you had, when you saw floaters or you, you think you were seeing double or you, you know, um, and uh, dream within a dream and uh, disentangling vines. And he uses the phrase making mistake after mistake and until you make the right mistake. And then he in, in one bright uh, pearl uh, fascicle, he says that even in the demon's cave, uh, which is which was part of the original dialogue with uh, the monk Shwansha, he says, even in the, even in the darkest part of the demon's cave on the dark side of the mountain, the one bright pearl is still there. So. I think with, you know, Dogen, uh, going back to, you know, kind of the ultimate and the, and the relative or uh, world of particularity, a simple way of saying it is like Dogen is always trying to take each side to the extreme, like the oneness and the multiplicity, take them to the extreme and then also bring them together in a kind of radical way. And so that's true with the illusion. Yes, it is a dangerous implication. And it can lead to, you know, the general category is antinomianism, which is true for other uh, meditation and mystical traditions that if you're if your main concern is to see, uh, you know, kind of one truth, um, but that one truth allows for, um, you know, it's it's something that nobody else can see pretty much unless, you know, you you claim that only this meditation or this kind of practice allows it to see it. and and therefore the rules are different once you see it, 
And maybe the roles for a bodhisattva are different from an average person because they see the true reality. And, you know, we, we have the famous story about cutting the cat that is discussed at the, in the Shobogenzo Zui Monkey. And um, uh, uh, so, so that's a little bit dangerous. And I think people have brought that up. I mean, I think some uh, traditional and some modern um, um, commentators on Dogen um, sometimes from within the Soto sect, sometimes from out, you know, from Rinzai Zen or other perspectives have brought that out. Well, where does Dogen really, really stand with those, with that implication? But I think what Dogen would say is uh, be resolute in the sense that um, he, he uh, in the, in the fascicle Gyoji sustained the exertion is one of the translations. He talks about a monk who turned down the imperial robe several times and never took it. Now they say Dogen, took it the third time. <laughs> so maybe he did make a compromise. Uh, but, but um, this monk, this Chinese monk in the, in the uh, 10 hundreds, Furong Daokai apparently never took it. And Dogen really admires that, that kind of character. Um, and um, it's that character that's going to prevail. I, I think, according to him, if the, if the character is true, then it conquers the illusions, that the, but it, but it realizes that the illusions aren't going anywhere uh, for, for most of us. And even for the enlightened person, there, there's still going to be some misconceptions that come in. So you can't, um, so he doesn't want to claim a, a final state, but it is, it is a tricky situation, uh, uh, way of uh, interpreting. And then, you know, one question would be, does he kind of alter his view as time goes by? That's a, that's a complicated issue we don't have time for now. But um, uh, so I agree. And, and he may, uh, to, to finish off, he may himself. And he, he might actually enjoy the fact that he's pushing the envelope in that regard. You know, like like, uh, you know, there's there's these sayings that were around. Uh, adding frost to do to do that was a bad thing because if you had do you didn't need frost adding flowers to brocade that was supposed to be a bad thing because you had the brocade why don't why do you need to add more flowers to it but dogan always says no that's what you should do and um you know he and he knows he's he's provoking uh the con, you know conventional people but he you know he i i, I, I from his standpoint i think that's that's what you know, that's kind of a conceptual move he wants to take. But thank you for that question. I'll just add briefly one point that uh, part of where that imaginative imagination comes in for Dogen and for Zen and for Soto Zen is in terms of the range of uh, the sutras, the Flower Ornament Sutra, very much the Lotus Sutra, and also the Vajrayana elements that, uh, from Shugendo and other places. So there's this whole range of Buddhist approaches that allows a kind of spaciousness in terms of imagining, but yet, so Dogen includes that, but also grounds it, I think as Stephen was saying, in terms of, the you know, taking care of the particular, taking care of what's in front of you. So thank you for that question and that response, Stephen. Uh, we're sort of out of time, but I kind of uh, feel like in terms of this opportunity, if there's one, if there's anybody who has one more comment or question or response, uh, maybe we could do one more, uh, comment for from anyone. 
on anything uh, that was talked about. By the way, I'm looking at the, at the screen here, and I see um, Dylan, so I like that name, and I see that he's got Dogen as the uh, image for his uh, screen. So, <laughs> But I'm not picking. If you don't have a question, that's okay, but I, I just... Uh, Dylan is our Eno. So. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and champion of the Flower Ornament Sutra as well. Uh, so, going once, going twice, anybody oh, with it? Let me ask you a question, Tygen. Um, okay. Um, last question. <laughs> last question. Um, so, when we discussed Pam Winfield, you said that um, uh, Ancient Dragon may need to uh, present a discourse touching base with current. Uh, you know, contemporary uh, thought, but it probably would not involve uh, Chinese cosmology. And you kind of chuckled to yourself, I think. Um, um, I'm not sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I no, just I think I was just saying that I have talked about this passage that Pam was talking about, but not in terms of Chinese cosmology. I think her her adding. So this I've talked about this passage a lot about uh self-fulfillment samadhi and the interrelationship of the practitioner and the environment and the whole world of the environment. I had never thought about it in terms of these five, uh, this Chinese cosmology. So, so no, I, I, I appreciated that very much. No, no, I know you appreciated that, but what are the, do you use other interpretative uh, models or do you, um, um, so in, in other words, um, in in talking about it, and of course you have the book on Bendoa, but um, but do you do you put it in other? You know, going back to that issue, uh, what Suji's trying to bring in all these other external viewpoints towards it. Do you look at it that way, or do you kind of stick within the discourse of Dogen himself? Well, one aspect that I bring in uh, when talking about that is about the environment. Yeah. So I think uh, Dogen's radical statement. I mean, it still seems totally radical. Uh, to our usual way of thinking that there's this mutual inconceivable guidance and support between earth, grasses and trees, uh, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles, wind and water, and each of us. And it's mutual that we support the environment. So I think I talk about that in terms of environmentalism or environmental awareness. And I think it's very, very informative to, to, uh, uh, environmental consciousness. So that's one 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 uh, realm that I bring in. Does that resonate uh, with other um, other colleagues in, in who are you know uh, concerned with Buddhist environmentalism? Um, I think so. I, mean, I hope so. <laughs> Juan Pablo, I'll call on you. Does that resonate? He's uh, doing it and. A dissertation on envir- environmentalism in various oh. contexts. Okay. I think I think so. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, there's lots. I, I think there's one of the things about Dogen's creative ambiguity is there are lots of ways to see him, and yeah. that's part of what uh, uh, you know what w- William Botterford was talking about in terms of all the different 20th century uh, takes on Dogen, and I think we're still creating more. Yeah, and uh, his writing is very rich and difficult, and uh, at the same time, the creative ambiguity—I think that's a good way of talking about it—it it evokes something. 
So we have to bring ourselves to trying to uh, respond to Dogen or uh, uh, how do we understand Dogen, which isn't to say that any, uh, that, 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 you know, we can go anywhere, but how do we uh, stay faithful to something that he's saying and yet put it in a context that it might be new. So, or might, yeah, be, but, uh, might be relevant to us, might be something that is especially important for our context. Yeah, I, I think you put it uh, perfectly. Let me add one more for us to this know. Uh, <laughs> in, in going, uh, a comment by William, and then I'll add a little bit to that, is that um, he said, he was talking about there was a, um, a Japanese literary uh, critic who, who dealt with uh, uh, kind of... Um, classical period Japanese uh, poetry and mythology also uh, was a bit of an expert on uh, French literature and had, had I think done some translations from French to Japanese but anyway got involved with Shobogenzo and worked with a, um, a, a scholar from the university like a kind of traditional Dogen scholar in putting out a major edition of Shobogenzo back in the 1970s and then because of that he wrote a couple of essays and uh, like William said at one point, this guy uh, named Tarada said um, something like, uh, I, I always get stuck talking about Dogen because I think I remember something he said, and I'm sure I remembered something he said. And then when I go back to the text to find it, I can't find it because my own imagination was uh, working a lot. And, you know, I had that feeling myself um, in, in, in working on Shobogenzo uh, recently because you know, it's the, you, you've written about the Lotus Sutra, and Dogen talks about the sutras in a lot of different levels. He, the Lotus is the uh, the most one, the one he quotes the most, but he talks about sutras kind of generally a lot of times, and says and says all these different things. And then at one point, I was reading something he he wrote in the Japanese, and I thought like, okay, I understand it, where he's kind of saying you have to read between the lines of the sutras, you know. And I had that passage, I went to quote that passage, and then I looked at it again. And, you know, it didn't really say what I had remembered that it said. And I, I thought, um, you know, had I, had I superimposed that or, or maybe I read in a different one. Or but yeah, that's, that's where the ambiguity really gets you on a very deep level. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, Dogen is very evocative. And we, to read Dogen, you have to kind of bring yourself into it. And, uh, and so, you know, so when I, when people are trying to read Dogen, <laughs> I, I often say, just read through it once, pick out the passages that are, don't try and understand it at all. Pick right. out the passages that stand out and then go back and, and look at those. And and then, you know, it's not that it's impossible to understand Dogen on some level, but um, that's not the point. <laughs> the point well, is that- we, we might've talked one time, there's, there's a new book, um, by a Japanese um, monk who who came to San Francisco was early involved in the San Francisco Zen Center, Kazumitsu Kato. Have you have you seen that? Yes, uh, you, yes, I know of him. Yes, yeah, and and um, uh, he he did a uh, published a biography recently, and he said that when he was in Japan, you know, they told him at first, "Don't read Shobogenzo," and then and then they said, "Okay, you're, you're experienced enough." He was like in his twenties, I think, and he, or around twenty, and he's and they. And and uh, because this temple was connected, had this big history, and he, so they gave him this rare manuscript to read, and he said he had no idea what it meant. And he asked his teacher, and 
teaches that. I don't know. You know, none of us know what Dogen. But then he has a very vivid description when he gets to San Francisco and the culture shock and 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 the, or dealing with the early days of San Francisco Zen Center. And he said um, passages like the ones where you know they where Dogen says tiles and and bricks are uh, you know and and all these concrete elements. You know, he said when he was walking around you know in a traffic jam in San Francisco, the hills of San hilly San Francisco. You know, it came to him that Dogen was like kind of guiding him in a certain way that he hadn't thought of before in when he just read it abstractly sitting in the temple. So that was another, that, that was really fascinating uh, passage to me. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. So um, we'll have announcements afterwards, but Singyu, would, could we did just do the repentance verse and the four Bodhisattva vows to close out? Thank you. <laughs> 